to uh, this is actually episode number forty of our uh, at YouTube podcast, which great timing. <laughs> we planned all along from the first episode to have episode forty at YouTube's fortieth party. Of course, very well planned, like most things we do. And uh, as you know, if you listen to the show, how many folks here actually listen to the podcast and are just sort of stumbling in here, wondering what's going on? All right. Um, we've got an extra guest, of course, which we'll get to in a moment. But as usual, we're talking all things U2, album news, tour dates, etc. from the staff of At U2. Uh, with me for this episode, starting from the far end here, we've got Mr. Matt McGee. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Great to have you in person for the first time. Sherry, welcome back. Hey, happy birthday, you too. And Tasula, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. And of course, our special guest for this episode, Mr. Dave Fanning, who most of you probably heard, who are, if you're at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... <laughs> with pictures in the background, <laughs> uh, heard earlier, but just by, by way of introduction for anybody listening later, uh, over the past four decades, Dave has been granted the first airing of U2's new singles, albums, etc. before anyone else in the world, so he might even have a new one on his phone already, we don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble. He's been the receiver of several awards and nominations. He's won several Irish Recorded Music Association awards and has won Best DJ at the Meteor Music Awards a total of three times and has been nominated at least twice more in 2008, 2009. This is uh, uh, great to have him on the show. Uh, so a big rock and roll Hall of Fame and at YouTube Podcast, welcome to Dave Fanning. Is this the first podcast you've been on, official podcast? Um, yes, it's the, the very first podcast I've ever been on in <laughs> really? my life. Yep. Wow. Whenever we have podcast guests on, we like to make them uncomfortable by putting two-story tall <laughs> yeah, photos yeah. on the wall behind them. Yeah. So, yeah. Welcome. So, yeah, I do welcome remember, the I remember all those photos. See, see the black and white one earlier on of uh, Bono and another guy? Do you know who the other guy in the photo is? It's... Uh, uh, it's a, from a really... Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's Jim Kerr from um, Simple, Minds. Simple Minds. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Excellent. So usually when someone, it's the first time someone's been on the podcast, we get them to say, how did you hear about U2 and what got you into the U2? But I think we've covered <laughs> that earlier probably, uh, but so we will cover some of that a little bit. But first, we have a very ongoing, uh, an ongoing question that we've been seeking to answer since episode one. Uh, and actually, we've got a, a special guest calling in live from Dublin, I think, uh, just asking this question. So if you just uh, pay attention here. How do rock stars smell like? So I don't know if you heard that. How do rocks, what do rock stars smell like, Mr. Fanning? Oh, that is a question directed to me. Ego. Yeah. Money. Ego. Ego. They smell like money to me. Fair enough. I love the smell of rock stars in the morning. No, I've no idea. I can't. I mean, I've no idea, really. You know? Like, one would need to be in a small room after they come off a three-hour set on stage. Right. Then yeah. you could answer that question. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we'll, we'll wait to see. Still need to figure that one out. Uh, just for the folks who are here live, I guess, where in the world has everybody come from to be here today? Anybody from, I know there's obviously lots of U.S. I'm from Canada. Anybody else from Canada? All right. Anybody outside of U.S. and Canada that's here? Nice. Shout out some countries. Or where are you? Brazil. West side of Dublin. Wales. Wow, from Tokyo just for this. For, wow. Fabiano, he's got UB. Did you just say the north side of Dublin? I was just going to say, watch it, kind of southwest, yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, for podcast listeners, we're pumped to have Fabiano all the way from Brazil. He tunes in live when we record, always in the chat room, active participant, so it's great to put a face to the 
name. So very excited to have Dave joining us for our podcast roundtable. Um, as folks here know, uh, for the listening audience later, Dave spent an hour in conversation earlier with Jason Hanley from the Rock Hall talking about his history with U2 and, uh, and thereabouts. So, but we're here, of course, to celebrate U2's 40th. And Dave, you were there, obviously, at the beginning. What was your, some of your first impressions of hearing what the band was like and what had you heard about the band before you actually heard the band? Um, firstly, I heard nothing about the band before I kind of heard the band or before I met the band or whatever. They were just another band when they came along with a demo tape like so many others. And secondly, um, I wouldn't have been as enamoured with their music as other people were at the time, probably. I mean, they became, they were quite liked from the beginning by a lot of people and it went up gradually. The, those days are gone. That never happens with bands anymore. Nobody ever gets past the fourth album unless the first three were really successful. And like, U2s weren't successful and they were able to keep going and it's really good that that was able to happen. But those days are completely gone now. At the beginning, an awful lot of people liked their music, as I say. I was 50-50 about it. There was other bands at the time, as I mentioned earlier, like bands like The Undertones and The Rats, and The Undertones' first album, fantastic. That was around the time U2 started. The Rats' first album, fantastic. That was around the time U2 started. So when U2 then brought out their first album, I wouldn't have been as impressed, I'm sorry about that, as I would have been with uh, The Rats, say, and, and The Undertones. And yet, for the previous three years, they were the band I played most on the radio. I liked what they did, but it didn't grabbed me as much as it seemed to grab other people. I know that's probably the wrong thing to say, but that's just the way it is. As I said earlier as well, I just like them as people. Yeah. Yeah, nobody will, will throw any hate at you for not being the best, biggest YouTube fan in the world or anything like that. So, you, so you, I mean, you, folks know, probably know, if you didn't hear the story earlier, that Dave uh, was the first to play U2 on the radio. The band came in several nights in a row. They played the first songs that they ever recorded in Ireland. L listeners of your show were asked to choose uh, which song was going to be on the A side, which song was going to be. So was this your idea to have them come? Was it their idea? Was it. Paul McGuinness's, like, how did that, what? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The Irish pop music, um, in 1967, the English pop music thing kicked off big time because it was the first time they had an official pop music station that didn't require people to listen to a, a literally pirates, Radio Caroline, which was 20 miles outside the exclusion zone of Britain and others. So you could broadcast from there. And of course, the sound went in here. We were talking earlier about the fact that radio years ago here, you might have a radio station here in this state and you could get right across other states and hear it as well because of the way broadband or sorry, the, the, the bandwidth and way was at the time. So BBC or the England had to do something. The BBC had to do something, so they brought in BBC Radio 1. We did the exact same thing ten years later. The pirates were doing whatever they were doing and the Irish national television and radio station had to do something and they did and they brought in a pop music radio station and at night time then we had rock music and that's just the way it went I've forgotten the question sorry it's my was, fault. was it was <laughs> bringing the band in every night and oh yeah the sorry was it your idea no the, no I think it was probably more Ian Wilson's idea he was the producer of the program and um, Paul McGuinness as well possibly because we played a lot of you two at the very beginning because they were the band I had played most the Irish band on pirate radio I mean if you two had released um, demo tapes at some other time I might have played them less I don't know it's just they coincided the, the start of them was the start of me on Pirate Radio so it was all you know synergy of some sort I don't know and it just happened to be and I liked their demo tapes as I say they probably gave me about five or six which most bands in those two years only gave me about one or two so you just kept getting new stuff from them and I liked it and I played it and that's what it was so then when we had it when we started with the National Radio Station the first session we ever did was with you 2 and also we said look they're going to bring out their first single and like at the time that was a big deal and yet you know lots of bands brought out a single or tried to bring out a single the big thing was getting a deal with a record
record label, and a record label then would you know help you bring out a single. These days you do it yourself. But I mean, it just it just all coincided. Like if if we went back, we'd probably never do that again. And it is a strange thing to bring a band in five nights a week and the, talk about a single when they haven't even had a single. I mean, most people around Ireland wouldn't have known who they were. A few people in Dublin who followed rock music would. It's as simple as that. Certainly nobody outside Ireland knew who they were. So, so you talk about the synergy of them starting when you were starting. Hot Press was also fairly new at that time, was it not? That's the point. Hot Press started in August 77 or thereabouts. I started in August 77 on the radio because I was doing a magazine before that as well. And that's how we got started. That's too long a story. And then the radio station started in 79, I mean, the, the, the national one. So those 24 months, it was just right time, right place. It was That's all it was, nothing else. It's not like I ever knew anything about... Like if I had predicted anything, I would have thought the undertones would have done a lot more. And in fact... I, to this day, I think they did do an awful lot because I think their second, the, the better the undertones got and the more mature they got in their playing, the less fans seemed to want to know about them. They just wanted them to be silly little pop stars, which they were for the first album. And they just got so sophisticated. By album number four, The Sin of Pride, it was like brilliant Motown, but there was nobody listening to them by that stage. They were gone. It's just, that's the way it goes. So if you say the right time, right place, if they had come to you three years later, five years later with demos, would the same thing have happened? Oh, I would have definitely played them, absolutely not. But no, I wouldn't have brought them in five nights for a whole week to really get behind a band. Like, it was, it would be seen by some people to be a misuse of national radio in some ways. But, you know, like, it's like, I mean, why, like this, how many bands are there in a week? There's like, you know, 50, 60 in Dublin or 60, 50, 60 in Ireland. Why, why give so much time to one band when well, everybody almost, else is jamming? Almost 40 years later, you had U2 equals BBC, where they That's took right. over the that BBC the yeah. and got a lot of flack for that as well. They got well. an awful lot of flack. No, wait, they didn't get flack for what we did because it was such innocent times. I'm just saying it's a kind of a weird thing. They got but a lot of flack later, from the BBC. Yeah. yeah, they got a lot of flack for that that they let the BBC take take them over completely. When was that? 2005 or so? Or? That was um, 2009. 2009. Yeah, 2009. Yeah. Last album. Yeah, that was huge. And then they did the thing on top of the roof and all that. Yeah, yeah. But should always get. Sure, you had a question about. This picture. Well, yeah, um, Dave was kind enough to talk about this particular picture earlier in the day. This is from '87, yeah. uh, which fans uh, uh, have uh, labeled the nude view. But um, as as Dave had uh, explained, Bono wanted to shake things up a little bit. So, um, seeing as it was Bono's idea, what other crazy ideas has has Bono brought to you that you guys ended up doing throughout the years with, with your various interviews? It's because we had done so many interviews. He just wanted to change. And he was right. He said, this will, it's just stupid, carry on. They were very giddy that week because the, the Joshua Tree was done and finished and ready to go. They had a video made, at least one video made, which was the With or Without You. They had one filmed, which was the I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. So, like, they were, a lot of work had been done. Now it was go out on stage and enjoy themselves. And they were playing a Crow Park gig in Dublin in 87. Uh, yeah, and the album was just out on that. So they were just, everything was moving. And there was all sorts of articles in the paper about, you know, the kind of, the Irish army going across America. Because most of um, the U2 crew were from Ireland. And in fact, 60% of them were from Cork. And that was a big thing for Cork as well. So it was, it was a big scene, you know, like just the, of the whole thing that's behind this major Irish success, the biggest one since Guinness, all this kind of nonsense. And like it was a huge thing, you know. So it was the, like they were just in a mood of, okay, we've done the work. And that's the best thing about that kind of thing. All the work is done. Now we just go out on stage and do what we like to do, which is to play. So they were very relaxed. And in order to just to change the interview a bit, I mean, let's face it, if we were all naked here now, it'd be a different interview, okay? <laughs> yeah. And there'd be nobody here if you had any sense. 
<laughs> You'd run a mile. There's that visual for you now. <laughs> Sorry Please for stay that. in the room now that you've... <laughs> Please Was there a leave. sense, just picking up on the Joshua Tree one, just because that's a fun one to go off of, I guess, when you listen to stuff beforehand, I'm assuming, you know, obviously you don't, not just live on the air for the first time, but when you hear that for the first time, you're one of the first people to hear it, whether it's Joshua Tree or another album. Is there a sense of, uh, you can tell it's going to be this no. world-changing album? No, 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 no. Yeah. I wouldn't have a clue. And in fact, I'm glad I don't. I mean, a perfect example would be in 1971, I heard, like, I was into all sorts of stuff, and I loved Soft Machine. And Soft Machine's third album came out, and I thought it was one of the worst things I ever heard. My favourite album by the end of 72, in an 18-month period, was Soft Machine third. It took a long time. And I loved it. It's a double album of just four tracks, one on each side. Brilliant stuff. Some of it jazz, mad kind of rock. Whatever. But that's, that can happen. So I have no idea about that kind of thing. One of the things is that I will say, which is um, I, I've heard most of the U2 albums in their houses of some sort, and usually up in Bono's house, and he'd ask me to come up and listen to the thing, and he doesn't really get the fact that I'm not going to get anything out of it the first time. And I don't want to. I, I like to let it go. Yeah. But he's so obsessed with it all that like I go up with my wife and she kind of like just laughs at this with Ali because it's just God he's off he sits right beside you and he just sings every word like this is a good bit this is good bit. and he starts singing it in your ear I'm kind of yeah okay fair enough in fact, in fact in fact I could okay here's one that I shouldn't but I will alright here's a good one alright um, the most recent album Songs of Innocence uh, oh God uh, we were up in his house having a meal, and we were at this, he's got this long, brilliant table of some sort, a big thing goes on for about a mile, and directly opposite me is somebody that these people here will know very well, and that's um, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, and he's sitting there, and uh, Seamus Heaney's wife was there for that one too, sitting, the poet's wife was there, and he played The Miracle of Joy Ramon. And it's like, <laughs> it's brilliant, because like, uh, Ali cleaning up the dishes, we're going, oh, God. And he's, he's there, and I'm here at this side of the table. And Bono comes in here, and he's just going like, yeah, I woke up every morning. And he's like the president of Ireland. He's going, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, God, he does it to everybody. <laughs> but it was great. Uh, like, it's whatever. He really, like, as I said earlier, he, he really believes in the music that he makes and gets totally behind. And one example of that would be, as I said, in, in Spain, when they brought out the No Line on the Horizon. The first five songs they played that night, in fact, the, the first song was the best song on the album, Breathe. And he, he just did five songs in a row from that album. And that's like a, a risky thing. You lose the audience when that happens sometimes. And you two are feck it. This is what we really believe in now and we love it, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. He's a bit, he sounds a bit like the, the father who's proud of his kids showing you the album. You're like... I big time. Yeah, 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 big time. Yeah. yeah. Is that part of the reason why you're considered their good luck charm? That's what Paul McGuinness used to call it. We have to let Dave Annie hear it first and all that. Nah, that's nonsense. I mean, if, I'm sure if the next album came out and they forgot to give it to me, they wouldn't think about it twice. It wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't make any difference. Would you think about it twice? <laughs> Whatever, you know. Yeah, I'd kill them. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, these days it's not like that anymore. I mean, like with the last album, I couldn't really do it too early because there was this major launch with Apple at the exact same time. So the only thing was that I had all the information about the whole thing, about what it all meant, so I was able to embellish it with that, you know. Did you feel a little jilted that the album came out before you could play it? Yeah, I had a few words with Steve Jobs. I put him in his place. But anyway. <laughs> Way to go. Good. Uh, 
So you're amongst some of the, the greatest YouTube super fans in the world sitting in this room right now. And uh, we have another you know, set in Dublin that's happening right now, and they'll be listening yeah. to this later. I'm wondering if you and all your years in associating with them have seen anything crazy from people like us that you might want to talk about. <laughs> Any good stories, just amazing I can't. I mean, like, everybody seems to know. I mean, these days, there's no such thing as crazy or good stories because everything is now so instantly all there. That's true. And, like, if you think about that movie that's out at the moment about the Beatles, I knew I guess the Beatles sooner or later. Yeah. Um, the Beatles, the 63 to 66, the Ron Howard movie, which is fantastic. And, um, like, that was only what was if they had film of. Nowadays, you don't do anything without it just being there instantly for the whole world to see. Have you ever been with them in a public place where you've seen anything happen or people approach them or um, are they pre-protected when you're, when you're with I mean them? like there's things I went to um, a football match with you two once Ireland were playing Italy in the World Cup in 1990 and it was a big scene because Ireland were in the World Cup for the first time ever yeah. and secondly they were doing pretty well and they were playing the host country Italy we lost 1-0 Toto Scalacci but um, he scored the goal. But uh, I remember afterwards, we were to stay in the ground while everybody went off. And the Italians go completely crazy when football happens. And they're jumping on top of car horns and mad things going on. So we were to stay in the ground and have a meal within the grounds. And the weird thing is, there was no alcohol sold in the place at all. But that included backstage. So we were all, or, but not backstage, we're in this big place outside. And we're at this table and there was about 40 people. At it. it was a huge thing. And uh, they brought out all these drinks and um, all water, you know. Well, water's the same colour as vodka, so they were not water. But anyway, there's all these bottles. And um, I remember, like, just the madness of it, because this was a very controlled place with, like, not gendarmes, what do they have in Italy? Whatever they're called. And all the police were there, whatever, like, and keeping the place all safe, etc. And yet, at one stage, during the dessert, or whatever it was, suddenly all these guys jumped up out of bushes with cameras, taking oh. pictures. Like, paparazzi had got to this point. Oh, I was just thinking... Dear. Like, I'd just gone home to my bed. I, I couldn't handle this kind of nonsense. It was all just too stupid. And that's just one tiny example. In fact, there's a picture there of... Um, I just saw a Bono sitting in a doorway, and I'm talking to him. That's in Modena in Italy, which is, um, what do you call him's place? Pavarotti's place. Mm-hmm. And um, they were getting the freedom of the city in, Mon- in Modena. It's just one afternoon in... I don't know what, what year it was, but it was like the madness that went with it, the stupidity of it all, the the silly red tape and police and motorbikes and oh, you know you wouldn't I wouldn't wish it on anybody. <laughs> just does mad. the band enjoy that type of? I think Bono football? does. Bono loves it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, then there's Larry. And then there's Larry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean whatever you know. Like they, yeah, they like it all. Yeah. I mean whatever. they handle it well. They handle it well. Yeah. I think there was. What, what is amazing about all the things and the madness of everything that happens to them is, and this is going to sound really patronising, but I can't believe how together they are. I can't believe how they just are still able for this, 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 like they were years ago. And it's astonishing because it's impossible to understand just how bonkers the whole thing is. Like last May, um, I went to uh, Monaco. Uh, there was a huge scene where... Um, Prince Rainier is it still Rainier. him? Is it still him? Yeah. Yep. 
Well, whoever it was, I thought he was dead. I thought it was, or his, uh, his, his son, his son. is it? And, yeah, anyway. Sorry, and son, he was yeah. supposed to fly in in his helicopter to give this award. And it was the worst night of weather in 50 years in, Sp- in France, in the south of France. And he couldn't land his helicopter. So the person who had to give Ali, who was getting the award for humanitarian work with A.D. Roach, the award was Bono. And he had to go up and actually give the award. And um, there was a reason I was saying, all this. oh, yeah. And then, like, the next day we were at a thing, uh, whatever it was, in the Café de Paris, or is that what it's called? Yeah, the, you see the casino in the James Bond movies, that place. And, uh, like, the madness of just yeah. people coming up. And, like, I mean, he walks in, like everybody else walked in, just to have a meal because a bunch of people there. And everybody got up and clapped and cheered. Like, <laughs> like I'm just going for dinner here, lads, you know? It was, it he was, loved it. I well, I mean, he, ex- he understands it's just the way sure. it is. And good luck to him. It's not for me. Having said that, if you want to give me a lot that he gets with it, like a lot of the money, I'd love it. <laughs> then you'd smell like a rock star. Yeah, it's not, I don't mind. I'd love to smell like a rock star, if that's what it meant. Yeah. So, so Dave Fanning actually does have a U2 superfan story that I know you don't remember this, and that's fine. But I went, I, I'll tell the story. I went to Ireland for the first time in 1996 some of you will might remember we were on the AOL U2 chat board, right? And I had this idea that I was going to write a book about U2 fans, right? And, and so I was researching the pilgrimage to Dublin. So I go over to Ireland, and I line up these meetings. I want to meet with Hot Press. I met with, I think, Barry Devlin, and I set up a meeting with him. And this guy met with me like it was like a Friday night at like seven, eight o'clock, the RTE building was empty except for you, and you stay. And he was the most gracious, wonderful, Aww. generous person. So, <laughs> so you do have a YouTube superfan story, and and uh, so, I, didn't, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> no, I, I I wouldn't expect you to. So, but we we sat at your desk, and you told stories just like, and it was wonderful. Thank Brilliant. you very, you're for, very for your welcome. gracious hosting of a YouTube welcome. nerd in 1996. Jeez, thank God you were one of, not one of the ones that I dissed on. I told to get lost. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't let him come on the podcast. I yeah. <laughs> he stayed home. <humble. laughs> one of the things that uh, over the years that you've been uh, aware of and observing, I'm sure, is just how music's role has been has been changing over the years and and you know from radio being the main sort of avenue to do that obviously now the web and, and internet etc what's what are some things that you have observed over the years i guess and how do you feel it's changed and how, especially for a band at u2's size and stature that when they release an album it, back in the day it was this mega event and these days you sort of have to create an event i guess and just some of your thoughts on actually that's a good way of putting it they do create an event and there is one thing which bono has apologized for recently but i don't know if i believe that he really did apologize let's just say he did apologize i I think he was wrong to apologise. A lot of people wouldn't agree with me here, but I think the deal they did a little while back there with that whole release, the way they did it with Apple, I thought it was... They had an association with Apple and they had an association with a lot of to do with kind of um, Silicon Valley type things for a long time. He's interested in all that, so he went with it and he knows a lot of the people. And then when they did what they did a couple of years ago uh, with the release of the album... And, like, you know, they gave it out for free and everybody gave out hell about it because it was in their cloud or whatever. I mean, like... The way I see it is like, you know, they did something that was part of what Apple is. They got a fortune for the album. They got it across to a thousand million people. That would, like there were people, 30% of the people who heard that album said, you too, what's that? Oh, it's a rock band. Okay, I don't know, I follow Rihanna or I follow rap or whatever it is. And they suddenly, like, they got to a whole new audience, which is exactly what they used to do with radio, get to a whole new audience. And they did all that. And they annoyed a lot of people who felt that it was an invasion of their... By the way, other people had invaded their things in the past, but people get their fangs out for you too, which I can understand. If you're going to be that 
big, you have to be disliked. There's nothing wrong with that. But they really went to town on them. And like they had to come out and apologise and that. And like, what does it mean? How do you get rid of this album if it's there? Like you do with the first ten emails you get every morning, you go <laughs> That's all exactly. you gotta do. What's yeah. your problem here? You know, and like they did something new. I don't think many people will do it again because people see it as an invasion of one's privacy. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think it was a great way to do it. It got the album across to so many different people, and it does feel like it's not what you might call rock and roll. It doesn't have the credibility of the way things were done years ago. Nothing is done the way things were done years ago. And the single most important thing for any band is to get your music out there and get it heard, I think, anyway. I mean, there was a, there was a movement, like, you know, all your kind of, you know, your, um, I don't know what the word is, like the mods and rockers, say, of the 60s or the 50s, um, the, every other thing right through the 60s, through hippie and all the rest. And then, like, the last movement in rock around our part of the world, anyway, was probably Britpop, which was 20 years ago. There hasn't been one since. There's no bandwagon you can jump on and lots of bands are the same. But just before Britpop, 95, 96, there was grunge from America. And just before that, there was Manchester with all the smiley faces and the funny drugs and etc. like Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and others. But around that time, there was another kind of movement, if you like, kind of, which was the shoegazing types, which are those who play their music and really lovely music and they're so embarrassed by it, they're looking down at their shoes. And that's where the word comes from. Now the whole shoegazing thing, it's fine, it's like, well we make this album and we really, it's a bonus if people like it. You two aren't like that, and I quite like that. We're going to make you know about this album, and you're going to like it. Okay, some of you will hate it because we're hammering you over the head with it. I think that's great. If I had art that I was releasing, I would probably want everybody to hear it, because you're bound to come across people who would actually love it. And look at these people here. They, you know more about you two than I do, and loads of people love it. You have to use whatever is out there in the day you're doing the music. What's out there now is that every door could open for you two, and they used the big door of Apple. Apple said, we'll give you this. We'll use it. I don't see anything wrong with that. That's why I don't really believe Bono apologised. It was just so many people were given out to him. Yeah. And their back catalogue did soar right after that. That's a very good people point. People like us that were buying yeah. it, obviously. It's a very good point that all their previous albums went into charts all over the True. world. And like that's, that's a good thing, I think, if I was an artist. It's like what happened with Live Aid. Or particularly over in our part of the world in 1985, every single artist who played that day, one or two minutes or maybe ten minutes, all their albums and back albums went into the charts except I think Adamant, he was the only one to lose out. (laughs) (laughs) He's so less... But uh, it's like, you know, you've got to use what's there. This is 2016. I wish it was 1966 again. I wish Bob Dylan was making the three albums he made in an 18-month period, which, and here's where I say the wrong thing, which are better than you two stuff. <laughs> Bringing it all back home, blonde on blonde and all those. Blows the water of everything I've ever heard, frankly. So, like, that was an 18-month period. And even his previous and next ones, just, uh, there was great times in that. But he used... Radio, you know, or used, you know, magazines. You've got to do what's there. Well, along the same lines, you two really capitalized on radio and and the pirate radio back in the early days, all all the way through eighties, nineties. I, I remember listening to RTE when. Um, uh, Octung Baby was first released and, and there was that whole party up and down Grafton Street waiting for HMV to open oh, yeah. and all of that stuff and, and, and with the rise of MTV and their ability to really get the visuals out there, on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you think that they've been embracing the social media 
and in the media of the day today as opposed to how they capitalized on it in the past. Firstly, you would assume that I might be up to date with social media myself. <laughs> okay, I have never been on Bebo, which it used to be for five minutes, or Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on anything. Uh, there are people to do with the program. How are we that able I work to contact on. him? Yeah, I know. I mean, there's an email address to the program and there's somebody who sends up the Snapchat things or whatever. I, I don't know anything about this. I know nothing. I can send an email. I can send a text. I have a phone that does a thousand things I can do too. I can send a text and get a call. I, I don't know anything about social media. I really don't. That's why when you said pod, podcast, I don't know. I don't follow it. I don't know it. I should. I'm not very happy about that. I think 20 years ago it was kind of cool to say that when all this first thing came out of, 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 of the information superhighway. And I'm a bit lost. No, to be you're honest. the you're the technology hipster now. You're no, you're I'm ahead not. of the next wave. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm just. I mean, I, I never forget something. There's one example. What do you call those things? Not hard drives. Another thing. Sorry, there's a thing that came in. Uh, floppy disks. Do you have floppy disks? Okay. Well, a floppy disks came in. They peaked and they were really huge. And then they went and something else. Now, I don't even know what a floppy disk did. It completely passed me by. So I'm sorry. I don't know anything about this stuff at all. So I can't really answer that question. From what I get the impression, they're totally together on all of these things and always have been. Always have been. Like the MTV stuff. I mean, that was really... Like when the MTV thing started, and I, like I'd say Bohemian Rhapsody Queen was the first that we would have seen in a big way. But then the way littler bands, smaller bands, like everything from the Boomtown Rats to Blondie and all of these, you know, they really used it well. And then all those U2 videos. I mean, I've been just... Crucial, huge. And now it's like, you know, 360 concert. I was at that concert in Paris, the, what do you call it, the Eagles of Death Metal one. Yeah. And like, you know, they, were, they did two nights. I was at the two nights there. And the first night was like a kind of a rehearsal. And there's about 45 cameras there. Your man, what's his name? I, I spoke to him recently. Who does it all? Anyway, and um, it was huge. Hamish, Hamish Hamilton. Hamish Hamilton. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And it was huge, you know. Like, and, like they, they know what they're doing with all that stuff. Let's face it. Did that, since you were at those shows, and we didn't know this until two seconds ago, uh, you obviously saw the show before that somewhere else, I would assume? I, I, I saw the first one in Vancouver. Okay. And I didn't see anything then after that. Then I saw three in London, and I saw the four in Dublin. So I saw those two in, in London. I've How seen enough. If, if they did another six now to Christmas, I wouldn't go. How did, that, Paris, how did Paris compare vibe-wise to those well, previous shows? I have to say, and you're expecting me to say something that actually isn't necessarily true, they were no different, really. There wasn't that emotional ending that you might think, okay. even if you're in the audience. Although, a lot of the people in a cordoned-off area, which was the most emotional part, were relatives of those who had died in the battle town. And they were specifically over there and given free tickets. And um, apart from that, to be honest, I'm not going to lie, it was... It was another. It was just another show. gig. Yeah, they handed over That's the instruments. Fair. I know it was very emotional for them, and I know it really was. But the gig itself was, you know, it was just another gig. And do you tour. think that was partly because they were filming it for HBO? Because I wondered about that. I thought, are they going to kind of sanitize this because it's... Coming. Yeah, that's a good point. In other words, like, you know, they should do the gig they want to do to get the best gig out. Agreed. And therefore, any one of the gigs could have done. So if this is just representative of the other ones, that's fine. It doesn't have to be any more special. Obviously, the ending to a lot of people was beyond emotionally, whatever. You couldn't describe it in one way in terms of who you are. But in terms of what actually happened on the night, it wasn't really that much different, no. Okay. Dave, when speaking of the, the INE tour shows last year, right, a lot of that is tied, certainly the first half of the show is tied to their experiences growing up in Dublin. Yeah. Um, none of us grew up in Dublin. You obviously have been in Dublin for many, many years. And the band over the years has done a lot of stuff to sort of portray Dublin to the world, whether it be interviews or what have yeah. you. 
So as an outsider, I wonder when you see them doing that, is it accurate? Does it ring true for you as someone who's been there? Yeah, 100% it does. I love it all. I think it's great. I think they've done that brilliantly. A lot of people hate it. Sorry, but let me put it another way. A lot of people don't. A lot of people in Ireland, you know this, but they don't like you too. That's true. A lot of people. Every, cab every cab driver that I ran oh, into yeah. when we were they, in Dublin. They like, they like oh, Larry. bloody hell. They know? like Larry, but they don't like the other no, three. No, it's just That's that like Bono, Bono has a big mouth. And yeah. Bono just, as everybody knows. Fair enough. And the bigger you are and the noisier you are. I mean, even like with all the kind of uh, charity stuff, they want people to be Mother Teresa. You're supposed to have, <laughs> you know, clothes on you that, you know, cost, you know, $2 and live in a shack or live in a hut. And how dare you be a millionaire and do all of this? Or a lot of other people then on the next level wouldn't like what Bono does because he is somebody who would have, say, six charities that he really believes in and wants to get something done. And there is a thing where the end justifies the means and a lot of people don't think that's the way you should live your life. He will talk to, kowtow to, and lick our some horrible senator somewhere in America to get that senator to go with what Bono wants to do to make sure that this is released and that children in Africa can be whatever. And you can look on it both ways. That's the wrong thing to do. He'll, he'll sit down with George Bush. He'll sit down with Obama. And like he'll sit down with people that you would like to get what he wants. I actually think that's fine. I know exactly what he's doing. And I, I agree with it. But I understand why people wouldn't. And a, a lot of the time, people in Ireland don't really like Bono because they love to be... Well, you know the keyboard warriors anyway who always come in at the end yeah. of some article and just love to be mean and love to be horrible. And it's a very nasty part of what the way we live now and Bono is in the total firing line for that. They love to be horrible publicly but that you just reminded me of a story uh, a few of us went to Dublin for the shows last November and a few of us went to Cedarwood Road to see Bono's childhood home and Googie's childhood home and uh, we had a cab driver taking us out there from the city and he was like why are we going to the north side you know what are we doing out here in, in, in this area and I said well we're going to go see Bono's house this childhood home and he grumbled the whole way there like oh Americans you well, hold on before you go any further it's a Dublin taxi driver but, please but, <laughs> but once we got there we got out of the car we went across the street to take our photos he stopped the taxi pulled over and started of taking photos of course he did <laughs> of course he did yeah yeah, yeah, so yeah of course well, he did he must really hate him yeah, because yeah. I did a thing, a program on television. It was a stupid idea that RT stole from the BBC, which was the greatest person of the century or something. And they had six people. And like uh, uh, John Hume from Northern Ireland Peace Process, he won it. And I, I, Bono was last of the six, actually. And I was the one who had to sell Bono. But I, we knew halfway through we weren't even in a competition. But we did a huge thing and we went all over. We went to Africa to some of the stuff that Bono has put money into. Really amazing factories oh, and things. Yeah. And a whole road that's built from A to B in Ghana, in, in uh, Accra, which is the capital of... And like, brilliant stuff. His money has done this kind of thing. Things you don't hear about too often. Or the amount of money they put into education in Ireland for music way behind the scenes. I just don't yeah. want to be talked about on that level. I mean, obviously, you'd know about Edge in New Orleans because it's an important part of making money for that, that it sure. should be known. But these are under under the radar stuff. And we, we did a thing in his, in his house. And the people, that, you didn't, did, did you meet the people that were living there? She's no, really they, lovely. They were in there, They're but... so nice. Come on. Kind of well, no, we had cameras and everything. On it. But this little bedroom of Bono's looking out across yeah. the room. And you see the, what do you call it, like up the road then the... The, the what do you call the tree in Cedarwood Road and in, in Gogi yeah cherry tree, blossom yeah. tree yeah, yeah all yeah. that kind of stuff yeah no it's great I mean it's great if you, like I mean I've done that with Bob Dylan I've sat in Gertie's Folk City in New York yeah. or whatever it's called now and I like I mean my brother went to Hibbing oh, in Minnesota you know because that's Bob's place and all commitment. this and I've done my Liverpool <laughs> stuff with the Beatles and all that but I mean I've never really 
gone out of my way to see all of you too. So I was well, why would you? I mean, if you're eating meals at Bono's house <laughs> yeah. these days. Oh, I shouldn't have told that story. <laughs> <laughs> the final supper. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he does. He, he really loves to. He really loves. I remember for the Pop Mart tour I was up there and he was showing me this thing. He says, and this is the way it's going to look, you know. And uh, he had this screen. This was 97. And like, it was uh, like... Technology it was pretty good stuff, like the big screen in his room, and he put this thing on. And I just the first thing I said was, "You're going to be sued by McDonald's." It was the first thing. <laughs> it was this big yellow M or whatever. It's yeah. just like this is never going to. Yeah, I think float. there's a sketch of it down downstairs in the. Um, is there? Yeah. yeah. So they don't come to you for legal advice before tours. <laughs> they do not. No, indeed not. No, no, no. We're here celebrating 40 years of U2, obviously, and we talked. To, we started with 1979. Um, you mentioned Paul McGinnis's name. Uh, a few questions ago. I'd love to hear your impressions of Paul and his importance. I don't do impressions. No, 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 no. no I don't do an impression. No. I don't know what, you, what your thoughts on him and especially his importance to them getting started and getting out of Dublin. I remember when Paul left the U2 thinking me, Bob, a few years ago and every single newspaper and radio rang me up. And like, what you, you know, it's just... Um, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know too much about Paul because he stays in the background in many ways, you know. Um, but at the beginning, uh, that's probably been the biggest difference between U2 and a lot of other bands. I mean, U2 themselves were very together. But I think, as I mentioned earlier, like, they went to London to play some gigs. And I thought they were going to go to London like other bands go to London, which is to go and stay there. And it's kind of, oh, God, you know. It never works out. They always break up within six months. Well, all the other bands did anyway. And uh, they were never going to London to go to London. They'll go to London because you have to go to London and then you just literally step over to America. They always had America in mind. And I think one of the very first things was that didn't he join up, join up um, what's his name, Paul with, with Frank Barcelona and yep. all these people yes. and Premier Talent and they got Springsteen, how did you do this? And they learnt that way and they always knew they wanted to, they came to Boston I think was one of the first times a big radio thing there's a guy there who's played them all the time. And Carter, Carter Allen. Allen. Yeah, Carter yeah, Allen. Yeah. Yeah. And you are basically the Carter Allen yeah, of Yeah, Dublin, that's right, that's, opinion, a, that's what I've been told. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but like that's what they used to do and like they did it I'm not saying it was a kind of a pincer movement, but it was a point where they really knew what they were doing because if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to break up. So they were able to do all their music, go up with a few decisions, but McGuinness made a lot of big ones and a lot of really good ones. And also, that was at a time when you had time to stretch out. Like a lot of people would say, and this is not meant to be cruel to the album October, that after October they could have been dropped because, you know, people thought, eh, I don't know, whatever. And then war went straight to number one in England and that, and that helped. But a lot of bands never get that far anymore. Without, uh, so without being too self-promotional, I, did a, I have a book that I published actually many years ago called YouTube. I interviewed, I think it was Nick Stewart, um, or my, I was, anyway, it was somebody who said that U2 was very fortunate to sign to Island Records because Island let them, gave them enough breathing room to have. There's no doubt about it. Chris Blackwell had like whatever he had. Like Some of the greatest music I've ever known came from... Um, the Island record label. And my, if I have one favourite musician in the world, if just somebody I look at as being the man, it's Steve Winwood. Not with all due respect to his big hits, 1977 onwards, but the previous 10 years with Spencer Davis and particularly Traffic and just what he used to do. Our Blind Faith is one of my favourite albums of all time. But all that stuff was just amazing. And Steve Winwood, not just his voice, 
and not just the fact that he was a major star at the age of 16. He was brilliant. He was always brilliant. So he was one of the many acts, and there were so many others too, like Jethro Tull and John Martin and Quintessence and all these bands. They were all on the island label. And then he kind of didn't do too much, Chris Blackwell, but the one thing he had was Bob Marley in the... He went for third world music and he made the Bob Dylan, the Bob Marley of the third world, and all this. And But the, the, the rock band he went with was um, U2. And he really did an awful lot. And he, like, U2 were lucky because... U2's first single came out, and it was on CBS, which was, um, that was in Ireland, and that meant nothing. The, 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 there were a lot of, um, what do you call it, A&R people came over to watch them in the Bagot Inn one night. And it's the famous story of they all watched them in the Bagot, and then by the time U2 came on after the second number, there was a major soccer match on, and every one of them went back to the hotel to see the soccer match, and they didn't watch U2. U2 got so annoyed. And so they put a gig on in the stadium in Dublin, and I was saying, you won't even get it half full. It'll never fill well, the stadium. Didn't they also buy half the tickets themselves? They, I, that must have been why there were so many people there. Because <laughs> the thing was sold out. And it was just the statement of it being sold out was a major scene that they could sell out the stadium. The stadium is um, about 1,800, no, it's about 2,000 seats, which is big, big for a home based Irish band. The only, like, you know, that was, like, the only band that was ever able to do that was Horse Lips at the time. But they toured around Ireland all the time and built up a huge fan base. So they played the stadium in Dublin, and uh, it's just a show. These bastards kind of, you know, like we're better than what you guys are doing. You're supposed to be looking at bands and not looking at football. And then they didn't sign with CBS International and they signed with Ireland, much to CBS's. I'd say those guys are long out of a job at this stage. Well, I was just going to say, and it was fortunate for them. I mean, you talked about how they kept having these right things, you know, right time, right place, and things just fell into place. And, and now you're and, hitting and, the and, biggest and, thing of all luck. Luck is, luck is 80% of it. It really is. Right time, right place. It just is. All the time. And if, if they had not signed to Ireland, we might not be here. Oh, yeah. I must say, it was a little bit easier in those days to hang on and do four, five, and six albums. But Ireland were great. Yeah, absolutely. And then they were very good back to Ireland. And once it came to, say, Unforgettable Fire or something, it was just a surefire hit. I mean, a surefire hit that was meant to last from 84 to, if, we, if we're lucky, we might get to 90. And by 86, 87, they were becoming the biggest band in the world. And they were the Led Zeppelin, if you like, who got there five years in the 70s. But nobody knew that the 90s were going to... I mean, as you know, they nearly broke up and Octung Baby... Like, nobody knew that the 90s would be as big and the noughties and the now. Well, you were the one who, who counted them down into the... Yeah, I did. Uh, yes, <laughs> Could you go into that, that story a little bit for us? Uh, it was a bit embarrassing. Yeah, OK. Um, that was in Can the point. Can we just play for the... It was yeah, in the... He has the clip. That video, This is my introduction to your voice. Hearing this over and over and over. Apologies. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> but go ahead. You're... No, there were two clocks. It was really embarrassing. There were two clocks. <laughs> I was so down. I go, 24, 23, 22, 6, 5. <laughs> Well, so well one fact, is set for Bono time because he's always late. Oh, God, it was so bad. Ned O'Hanlon's always talking about that, that he has it on tape. There's nothing I could do about it. He's supposed to play it for me or show it to me. Was it filmed? 
Was that gig filmed? I don't know. It was, it was. If sure Ned was involved, yeah. 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 It must have been, yeah. yeah everything yeah. is filmed. Yeah, everything is filmed, even back then. That's, that was the last day of the century, yeah. Yeah. So, so going from the Point Depot and and then seeing what they transformed into with the whole Octung baby, and you said earlier that your favorite era was you know up up through Rattle and Hum from um, not necessarily favorite. It's just or, that I think it deserves more credit yeah. than it got. So, how do you think that that dreaming it all all up again was that something that you felt they needed to do, or I think everybody it? probably felt that because, like, they had finished. I mean, the, the, what do you call it? Rattling hum, the journey through um, kind of the roots of the music that they were playing that they didn't grow up with. Like, I grew up with that in the '60s. They didn't grow up with that music, but they knew that they were playing it and wanted to know more about it. And being as inquisitive as Bono is, they made sure they did know about it. And that's kind of what that album is in so many ways, the heartland of America. And I thought that was a fascinating journey, even if one or two flaws along the way. Not all the songs were great, but they were mostly really good. I loved it as a piece. I just loved it. Um, but like the, the, the whole thing of doing it all up again, they need to be tested, I suppose. Yeah? And they go over to freezing Berlin, and they're not in a good mood, and they're not getting on. And there's like fights between Bono and Edge, I think, big time. And things weren't happening at all. And that's not a bad thing, though, you know. I mean, it could be that it could easily not have worked out at all because so many bands do fight and then go off to do it somewhere away from everybody and then it gets worse. Where with U2, it just, you know, they got better. And I think most U2 fans that I know say Octone Baby is the best album they ever made. Yeah, so, yeah. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we're running out of time, but just one quick question before we wrap up. Um, what do you think of the new music that they haven't put out yet? <laughs> I, I seriously I actually don't like it's funny how I hear you two albums I don't necessarily hear too much work in progress I'm not usually in the studio when things are happening but I'm not at all I was a bit for Atomic Bomb but nothing I don't I don't know what goes on and usually what goes on is doodly old stuff anyway that they're just <laughs> constantly working over and something particularly the edge so I don't really know you know I mean like I, I've heard the, the like when I hear albums I hear them in the weird like the, the what do you call it Rattling Home actually the first time I heard that, I was in Los Angeles, and they were in a house in uh, somewhere or other. It was, do you remember the Menendez brothers who killed their parents? Yeah, Adam bought that house. That's right. That's where they were. Yeah, did he buy it in Los Angeles? Yeah. Okay, so he owned that house we were in. I didn't he know did. That. I don't think he still owns it, but he did. At all the right. Time. Well, yeah. I remember it was in that house, and they had all these. Um, Larry was trying to do, was trying to get the merchandise stuff together. There was a billion covers of what Rattling Home would look like, and T-shirts and everything. But uh, and then we went with Phil Joanno down to Universal, putting some music to something to the movie or doing something. I don't know. But um, like when when they were doing that album. Uh, I forgot what I was saying again. What was I talking about? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, where I've heard the albums. That's what I want to say. Because that's all I do. So I went with Adam. I was meeting my wife at the time. Was she my wife then? No, she's my girlfriend. And we drove through <laughs> Los Angeles to go to some... It was a Vietnamese restaurant or something. I don't know where they were going. It was about 50 miles away. So I was and with... And Bono wanted to walk. No, yeah. Actually, that's right. Yeah, no, no, that's, Bono. In, that's in the book. Oh, is it? All yeah. oh, right, okay. Well, Bono, yeah. Sherry's okay. done the research. Yeah, yeah, Bono wanted to walk. That's right. And it was ridiculous. So it was about 50 miles. So we were able to listen in Adam's car. It was Adam. And he had a cassette in the car. And he said, I really want to hear this because I haven't heard any of this driving yet. And I had my tests, you know, like one in the bath, one driving, one whatever. So um, <laughs> he wanted to hear it driving. So we heard the whole album. We were able to hear the whole thing in the car. And I don't ask you what I thought about it. I thought nothing about it. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, some of the songs I knew already because they were like. Um, 
what do you call it, gospel versions of songs that had been on previous albums, that kind of stuff. So it was all mad. So all of those albums, I mean, I met Edge at the traffic lights once, and he said, for Christ's sake, are you going to let me hear the album? I said, come on. So I went to his house, and that was when I heard, um, what do you call the one, after Octum Baby? um, Zeropa. Zeropa. Yeah, that's where I heard a lot of Zeropa and all that. So he played a lot. So it's bizarre, and you hear other stuff, and whatever. So I don't hear anything much beforehand. I don't even try to necessarily, and I have no opinions on any of it. Having said that, there's about 50 songs out there. They really do have 50 songs. And I think a lot of you will know a lot of those. They played certain bits and pieces in various things before. So who knows what's going to be on the album, which I presume is now 2000. 17. There you go. We could keep talking forever. I know I could, we could, but uh, we need to wrap up. And uh, the way we usually wrap up is getting everybody to say where they, you can follow them on Twitter. I don't know if you know your, your Twitter handle. <laughs> so put you on the spot. Uh, Somebody make at Dave Fanning and give him the login info. <laughs> no, I, think I know Dave Fanning shows. There is a Twitter thing, yeah. address, whatever, tweet. Handle. Thing. Handle yeah. um, at, at Dave Fanning, Fanning Show. show? Yeah. At Dave Fanning, yeah, yeah. but it's that the program right. on the radio. So it's not really, yeah, yeah. At Dave Fanning Show. Oh, right. yeah. There you go. Have I done it? Good. So we won't expect a retweet of the the show when it comes out, I guess. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Matt, where can folks find you on the internet? I am at Matt McGee on Twitter. And Sherry. I'm. Uh, what am I? At you two come, Sherry. Tasula. At Tasula T A S S O U L A. And I'm I Chris, and you can follow, of course, uh, the. Uh, show or the, the show the, the website, oh, the website we at u2 is on twitter and on facebook.com slash atu2 and you can find the show on itunes on the web at goodstuff.fm slash atu2 of course like i said this is episode 40 thank you all for listening the live audience here thank you for listening later wherever you happen to be in the world and of course special thanks to mr dave fanning that's it for the show thanks for being here